couple years ago, I was sitting down, uh, taking a break from my job at The Athletic Media Company, and uh, I was drinking a non-alcoholic beer from Athletic Brewing, and I thought, uh, hey, this this could be a partnership because I'm, I'm an ad wizard, and so I put those two things together, and took a couple years, but now I get to read ads for Athletic Brewing and uh, their non-alcoholic beers, and I'm excited about it. And I'm excited about it because I like the product. I like the product for a variety of different reasons. There are times where I'm uh, the designated driver, and that is, it's perfect for me. I don't feel like I'm, I'm missing out on a whole lot. There are also times where I'm not the designated driver, but it's going to be a long day of gabbing, and I don't necessarily need to have 10 IPAs in a row. So I will mix in an athletic, non-alcoholic beer, and I, I feel like I don't miss a beat, and it allows me to pace myself uh, the way I want to do it. It's perfect for beach days, music festivals, and baseball games, camping, late nights. Uh, they have a ton of different varieties. They have uh, light. They have upside uh, Don Golden. They have Run Wild IPA. They have a hazy IPA. They have summer seasonals. They've got a, a lemon Rattler ripe pursuit. I don't even know what a Rattler is, but now I want to try it. I feel bad that I haven't tried it. So this summer, ask for the only non-alcoholic beer you need to know, Athletic. Head to askforathletic.com to find it near you and use the code TA2024 to get 15% off your first online order. That's code TA2024 at checkout for 15% off. It's near beer, non-alcoholic beer, and it tastes Listen, I grew up with some funky ones. Uh, those didn't taste like beer. This tastes like this. This is good non-alcoholic beer. Uh, exclusions and conditions apply. Athletic Brewing Company, fit for all times. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The 2021-22 season is finally upon us. Well, training camp is upon us. It is episode two of VanCast 2.0 for Hanology and Thomas Strance. We're actually, if you had a visual of this, if this was a video pod, we are sitting in Thomas's hotel room in Abbotsford. Thomas is desperately wanting to go home, but he's happy to talk hockey. <laughs> yeah, and well, I forgot my mic. 
So usually we record remotely. Ever since, this is my, me and Jeff used to do these, me and J-Pat used to do these all the time like this, with him holding a mic and, and twerking it back and forth, twerking it, giving it back and forth. And I forgot my mic when I moved out to Abbotsford. So I did a Sakaris and Price hit earlier today in J-Pat's hotel room, because he had the direct plug-in to Sakaris and Price. And I got on and I explained the story and I said, and they say J-Pat and I don't podcast together anymore. So this is my second straight like sleepover style podcast arrangement with both my former pod wife and my new one. Truly, today has been a baffling one for me. And that's without even talking about everything that's happening at the rink. And if you're wondering, no, we're not socially distanced. But given the way that, you know, we're going to be tight together all yeah, season. Yeah. We're pretty much in the same bubble and that's the way it goes. But uh, here we are talking about day one of Canucks practice. And listen, I'm, I'm proud of myself because I was supposed to cover football today. And I said, no, no, I'm at least going to go to the morning practice just for VanCast purposes. Yes, let's go. Well, and you saw a pretty interesting practice all, all around. Like it was a pretty interesting day on the ice with some interesting line combos, some, you know, vomity fireworks, (laughs) (laughs) a lot of fatigue, a viral video of Oliver Ekman Larson. Not the first impression he wanted to make, I think, but also that's way overblown. Yeah, let's start there because clearly, number one, he didn't get the memo. (laughs) 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 You know, Travis Green's been known to do this before. You wanted to play for Travis Green. You wanted a fresh start, Mr. Ekman Larson. Uh, It was going to work out well for you. Well, but in fairness, I mean, we watched the whole skate. He looked good during during practice. He spent most of his time with Pullman and... Uh, we want to dive into that a little bit later, but I mean, even in the in the can I say bag skate or should I just say conditioning? It's, it's opportunity. It's a bag skate, but it's a forties. The forties skate is the name of the drill. So it's the it's the forties skate bag skate drill or something like that. I don't know, whatever the bag skate. There you go. But either way, Travis Green loves it. it like he and, and people know what's going to happen day one. And for for the majority of of the lines, the forties. Oliver Ekman Larson was fine, but the last couple wasn't. Chris Faber, among others, decided to push out that tweet, and here we go. <laughs> it has a hundred thousand views. I got calls from our producers immediately saying, "What's this? We need we need context." And I'm like, "What well, context was? He was just fine." Yeah, he was fine. He was just tired. Like, here's the thing about the forty skate: it is a work smart, not hard drill. I mean, it's a hard working drill too, but really, it's about working smart. Now, I talked to Henrik Sedin after the drill because Henrik Sedin is like you know, the master of the 40s skate. Like oh, he's yeah. been through it. He knows how to do it. Fitness nut, right? And also super analytical about analytic perform or about athletic performance, right? Like Henrik Sedin's broken it down. Here's Henrik Sedin's rules for the bags for the bags for the 40s skate, bagscape. The bagscape. Let me guess. Daniel, you go first. <laughs> yeah, Daniel, yeah. Here here it is. Henrik says the key is you take four hard strides after every stop and you glide the rest of the way. He says where guys get into trouble is that you don't have enough momentum off the hop and you work too hard in the middle to catch up. He says the other key is that you have to be on cruise control through practice. He says you have to be, you have to preserve and pace yourself through the 100-minute practice that precedes it. He says those are the two biggest mistakes. And, and if you fall behind a little bit, you can't worry about it. You just four hard strides, glide. Four hard strides, glide. This is why Bo Horvat, Tanner Pearson, Tyler Myers, JT Miller, right? The smartest, most, like, you know, long-serving veterans on this team. They do the bag skate without breaking a sweat, it seems, right? They know the game. They train for it. They know the game. Jason Dickinson, who's never done it before, struggled immensely. I asked him for one word to describe 
the bag skate, his bag skate experience, and he called it enlightening because he'd learned the game. He said, I wasn't prepared to do it after the practice. That was my training. I wasn't prepared. Connor Garland vomited after he did it. He said his problem was that his short, stocky legs, you know, he was pumping, trying to keep up with JT Miller and Vasily Podkolzin, and he got gassed because he went too hard early. Another basic mistake. Oliver ekman Larson made both of those errors, and at the end, he blew a flat, and everyone blew it up to be more than it was. Oliver ekman Larson didn't struggle sufficiently or early enough for this to be any cause for concern, even if you're among those worried about his foot speed. Meanwhile, the Connor Garland video did not generate nearly the social media traffic that Oliver ekman no. Larson did. No, it didn't. And and but I don't know. Like I mean, puking seems more <laughs> effective, doesn't it? Like I mean, that should generate a little more buzz. Well, I, look, I think I think the buzz around Oliver ekman Larson, like it just does not match the reality of what it was in the ring. Like I watched it, I barely thought twice. I was like, oh, he's falling behind, but I didn't think he was like a dog for his performance in the drill. Like later on in Group Two. We saw Ole Olevi struggle right from the get-go. And this isn't his first rodeo. No. And after the third time, he was snow-angeled in the corner to the point where JT Miller skated across the rink, having finished his 40 skate. You know, wasted some energy to go tell him to get up. And then again, later on, told him to get up. While Tyler Myers also seemed to be beseeching him to get up, his cameras moved into position to capture his snow-angel in the corner. That, to me, means something. Oliver ekman Larson struggling does not. So what's your takeaway? Well, and I want to get to that first practice because I do want to talk a bit more about ekman Larson. But what's your takeaway? Because when we talked about foot speed and Ole Olevi's ability to get around the ice and how much of a concern that was going to be. So do you read into that that he's no better? I do. I, I, I think that was a big enough performance that it's now put him behind the eight ball in that battle. Like that was a – I'm not saying it's over. I'm not saying he can't come back from that. But he's behind the eight ball in that roster battle now, for sure. Even though he got the assignment with Myers, where Hunt got the Madison Bowie assignment, and Rathbone got the Shen assignment, like that would have suggested pecking order. Yo, mm-hmm. Levy's got the inside track, right? I think after day one already, that has been toppled. Wow. But I mean, when, when you look at Hunt and you look at Rathbone, I mean, they performed well in that drill. Yeah, they did. For sure. You know who was really good, surprisingly to me, in that drill? Luke Shen. Luke Shen was astonishingly good in that drill. But you know who did it best? By a lot. JT Miller. Like, JT Miller did it perfectly. And, as bonus points, JT Miller, who spent so much practice talking to and communicating with and showing the silly Pod Colson little things, tips and tricks here and there, in Pod Colson's first, like, NHL-level English language practice, skated beside Pod Colson, and I'd bet you anything he was like, Step where I step, bud. Like, step where I step. Because Pod Colson's performance as a 20-year-old, new to the organization, new to the NHL, pretty rare that rookies are like... Like, the difference in fitness level between NHL players and guys who played lower levels is significant, right? Like, significant. Pod Colson was, like, one of the most impressive performances. But, you know, as much as I'd love to rave about it and be like, what? A specimen! Like, <laughs> like I think he knew to work hard. I think he had the veteran tips from JT Miller and that it helped him a fair bit in that bag skate drill. So he absorbed it quite quickly. Uh, let's get into the lines. And, and I, look, we, we don't want to overplay these, but we do. But we do. And and when you 
listen to Travis Green, he'll always tell you not to overplay them, but he does. Well, he also doesn't. He's like, oh, I didn't just draw them out of a hat. He says that every year. Yeah. He starts laughing. Now, now when he says that, he looks at me and laughs. He's like, ha, ha. I'm like, you say it every <laughs> year. It's your annual line. But there's always, there's always noise. So that's true. There's always noise. Like there's always things in the lines that don't matter. But there's also always Hoaglander on the right wing of Horvat and Pearson, which matters, or Hughes with Tanev, which matters, or Pedersen at center, which matters. Like every year we see something that is signal within the noise. And yes, we're going to go through some speculative mumbo jumbo that doesn't matter to get there. But there is at least something we saw today that will resonate this season. Okay, so let's start with Ekman Larson, who got paired up with uh, with Pullman. And there was some debate about whether or not Pullman would potentially be a fit alongside of Quinn Hughes, who of course isn't here. So, you know, could they have gone Pullman and Hughes and let Travis Hamannick, who's also not here, be the babysitter for L3 or, you know, the left side defenseman three, um, you know, because he was able to do some good things with Hughes in that role a year ago. And... Now, you know, obviously the two of them aren't here, so it's simple enough to leave them both out. Uh, do you, so is it going to be in your mind early on in the preseason, at least Ekman Larson and Pullman? And that was kind of what you thought coming into this. Yeah, I mean, I think Pullman, Ekman Larson makes a ton of sense. Pullman played the tough minutes with Josh Morrissey in Winnipeg last year. Uh, they had success. They kept goals out, but like they played in front of Connor Hellebuck. How much was it Hellebuck? How yeah. much was it them? It was mostly Hellebuck. I'm not going to lie, lie to you, but... You know, Pullman's played that role. I think they like that. I, li- I think they think the speed complements Ekman Larson well. And Ekman Larson's going to have to play the toughs. We know this. So I don't think, ideally, they'd play him with Myers, the defense, their regular defenseman who they played in the softest minutes a year ago. Like, that just seems like a leap to me. Although, I expected Myers to get that assignment just based on seniority on day one of camp. Yeah, you thought just to, to make him feel respected that it would totally. go in that direction. The fact that it didn't, I do read into that. Like, the fact that they right away went to Pullman, I think that is signal, not noise. That That is, in their mind's eye, their second pair. And at the same time, I mean, when you look at Tyler Myers' overall body of work, yes, he's he's effective most as a third-pair guy, but by the end of it all, his minutes still wind up being pretty high in, in top four minutes. Totally, but he doesn't play the tough matchups. And if you play with Ekman Larson, considering you're going to have one of Rathbone, Hunt, Yolevi, and Quinn Hughes, assuming he signs before the season starts, like we know that Ekman Larson's going to play in toughs. Myers will get ridden in terms of his overall minutes burden, but he's not going to be the first choice go out there against McDavid guy uh, that they're going to need Ekman Larson to be. So, you know, I do think Pullman has the inside track at this point to be in that spot, even though by season's end, I'll also be surprised if he ends up playing more minutes than Myers, regardless of how they take line rushes. So let's stick with Group A, and uh, we'll look at a couple of the lines. So you look at Hoaglander, Patan, and Besser. So easy to say that Patan is the placeholder for Elias Pettersson on that line, but we'd also speculated as to what the top six would look like, and are we automatically going to see the lotto line, or are we going to see... Hoaglander get an opportunity, and does this suggest to you that Hoaglander playing alongside of Brock Besser with a placeholder for Elias Pettersson mean he's going to get a real look on that top line? Yeah, I kind of look at this as a pair and with a placeholder, right? Like, yeah. And, and I'd go through, like, not just Group A, but into Group B as well, and I see three pairs that I read a lot into, right? I see Hoaglander-Besser, obvious who would fill in there in the middle. I see Pearson-Horvat 
no surprise, really. I mean, that's the classic running mate duo. Kind of kind of disappointing, though, because I think many of us felt that Pearson's going to be better served as a third-line winger as opposed to a second-line winger, and they might look at more consistent scoring options in the top six. Well, But I would have agreed with you in a vacuum, except that the third pair that I'm looking at, and the one that Travis Green explicitly tipped his hand and said, I was interested to see that, was Miller-Garland. Now, they had Miller in the middle, but if you go with these pairs and assume that Pedersen fills in for Patan, right? That leaves two middle six spots, one for Dickinson, either on the right wing of Horvat and Pearson, which would then become a tough minutes third line, and, and your second sort of second line would become Garland, Miller, Pod Colson. I don't hate that. That sounds kind of no, interesting. I, yeah, I don't hate that at all. And or you flip it and you've got a tough minutes line that's Miller on the left wing to win draws, Dickinson and Garland, and then a softer minutes line that is Pearson, Horvat, Pod Colson. And you know what, Farhan? I don't hate that either. Yeah, no, it's fair. It, like, like, it's a completely different look. And, you know, we, we've debated JT Miller at center before. I'm not a fan of it. Me neither. But if you have him with Dickinson, there's some intriguing possibilities there because they can each take draws on different sides. You've also got, you know, defensive mit- defensive matchups in terms of who plays down low. It, there might be something there in terms of three completely balanced lines. Yeah, I mean, I didn't foresee that solution. But having when when I, when I broke those down into pairs, I kind of liked both options, and you know I do think it gives the Canucks some flexibility to maybe have you know in Travis Green's mind anyway, like you know you trust Pedersen and Besser to drive a line together, right? You trust Horvat to drive a line, and you trust Miller to drive a line, and you're giving all of them some pretty decent weapons to do that, whether it's Hoglander, Pod Colson, or Garland. Maybe, but I like. You know, we we believe that Pearson and Horvat are this really exceptional pair together, and they're not, right? From an offensive standpoint, they're not. And so you just wonder, what are yeah. you doing to Bo Horvat? Because you either put him with a rookie in Pod Colson, who's got a bit of a defensive lean, or you put him with Jason Dickinson, who hasn't necessarily shown. We all believe, or we, we've been led to believe, that there is more in the tank and the right opportunity for him on the offensive side. We haven't seen that yet. So from a Bo Horvat standpoint, you've right away labeled it the third line. Now, Travis Green's never going to label these lines because that's just who Travis Green is. But for all intents and purposes, he would be a third line center, a matchup guy. And he also hasn't always proven that he can be that matchup guy. So what are you doing to Bo Horvat in that scenario? Well, you're giving him, you're giving him like a, a premium version of Louis Erickson in Stop. We, look, we, this is podcast two. You can't talk about Louis Erickson. We've even replaced his number. Stop it. <laughs> I'm just saying that's what Dick Dickinson would be like. A guy who wins a lot of battles, is reliable defensively, probably can dent the empty net <laughs> with the best of them. And, and unlike Louis, he can skate. So, I mean, I don't, I'm just saying if that ends up being a they're not going to play third line minutes. They'll play more. No, but they're going to play. They're going to play matchup against top lines, and that might that hasn't always served Bo Horvat well. And no. if you put him with Pearson and Dickinson, that's what you're setting him up to do. Totally. But but at the end of the day, so long as he can draw, so long as he's not getting outscored in those minutes, that means you're playing Miller, Garland, Pod Colson against second line competition, and that means you've got Hoaglander, Pedersen, Besser just destroying the bottom end of lineups. I mean. I don't, I'm just, I don't hate that. Like, it, well, it makes I, some sense to me. I think overall, you're not wrong. I find it hard to hate, but I, I do struggle with how that impacts Horvat. Like, I, I don't like the thought of him as a third-line center. I think that there's some 
he's got more offensive upside than what you might be setting him up for in that moment. So then flip it. So then flip it, and you've got Miller, Dickinson, Garland battling Tufts, Horvat, Pearson, and Pod Colson wrecking bottom six competition, and Pedersen, Besser, and Hoaglander tra- trying their hand against second line competition. I don't hate that either. Like, the, you know, just by flipping one guy, you can completely change Bo Horvat's role. And I think this speaks to some of the weapons that the Canucks may have in their arsenal. I do think we got, you know, a not set in stone sneak peek at some of the options or some of the ways that Green is thinking about it. And while those, the way that he's thinking about it appears to be outside of the sort of, um, sort of the way that we'd anticipated it, I find it tough to not be kind of impressed by the solution he appears to have found. Well, at least we're talking options because before the options we would discuss at this point in the proceedings, we would be like, well, I kind of don't hate that that much. (laughs) As opposed to now, we're like, hey, we kind of like this. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruit and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on Direct TV. Terms and restrictions apply. So let's dive a little bit more into uh, session session two. And I know that we've touched on that. Actually, you know what? Before we leave section session one, Will Lockwood, who's generally been a you know a perpetual camp all-star, right? I mean, he's the guy that you notice in camp, and you. you he kind of whets your appetite that this guy's just one small step away. We'll probably see him in the lineup with the big club this year. What do you see from Will Lockwood in day one? Will Lockwood is a training camp beast. <laughs> like Will Lockwood might have been the most impressive player on the ice forehand. Not only not only did he give it all all practice and then roast like roast his group in the in the forty skate. Like he was a half rink ahead of everyone else he was with. It was cruel. It was unfair. Um, but he was like, you know, whipping wrist shots, glove side on Demko. He was incredible. Like he was incredible. I don't, I don't know that anyone made a bigger statement of intent on Thursday. Uh, uh, sp- not, not someone whose statement of intent really mattered, like who really had a chance to sort of tilt things in their favor. I don't think anyone had a better day than Will Lockwood. Wow. That's big praise. Yeah. He's a beast. I mean, you know what's crazy about this like post-pandemic hangover is that Will Lockwood signed in March of 2020. Like, good month to sign, bud. And he's had three training camps with this team now in 14 months. Like, how weird is that? You know, usually at, at most you'd have your first three in 25 months or 26 months. He's had three training camps in 14 months. He's been excellent at all three of them. All three of them. But this time he's got a real shot to win a job. I talked to him post-practice, 
doesn't impact his mindset. He's aware of it. Yeah. But he's like, no, I came into the other ones thinking I'm going to win a job too. You know. Uh, uh, you love youth, don't you? You love youth. Yeah. I mean, the, the naivety is, has served him well. And But now, like, the way they lined up in terms of the fourth line guys, right? Like, Patan obviously got a plum assignment. McEwen got a like, hey, you've got a clean slate, bud. Here's a good assignment. Mm-hmm. Assignment. And then they put Chase on and Di Giuseppe with Dickinson. So right there, Green is sort of established. And granted, Mott is out, Sutter is out, and Bailey is out. Kind of a, a rough pecking order of like four guys with a shot at winning the, that job. Winning those fourth line jobs. Or, or, you know, being player 19 through 23 on his 23-man roster. Will Lockwood really did start with minor league players. But... No question in my mind, he, he's one of the five horses in that race. And and I I mean, of the five, like, Di Giuseppe was excellent today as well. It was a day that suited their skill sets. Like, today was a day that rewarded stamina and speed, right? And so it suited the, their skill sets. You would expect those players to shine, but they did. Like, they really did. And I do think Lockwood's put himself into a position to deliver on, you know, pre-camp dark horse buzz. But when you look at a guy like Will Lockwood and you look at his skill set... You almost wonder, like, ultimately, he's going to have to make the NHL as a fourth liner. But is that where his skill set necessarily best affords him an opportunity long term? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I do. I think this is a guy, the question for me about Will Lockwood ultimately is going to be with the style that he's going to have to play to succeed in the NHL, right? Which is going to be blocking shots. It's going to be getting another four check. It's going to be throwing hits, much like Tyler Mott. Will his body hold up, you know, considering mm-hmm. his injury history? And we've seen with Tyler Mott, that can be a big question for this player type, right? The undersized speedster who needs to be, you know, a, a forechecking physical player, shot blocking, penalty kill demon guy. Like, it's a demanding spot. And a lot of these guys are like 170 pounds. Like, that's a tough way to earn a living, right? That is a tough way to earn a living. For me, that is the big question on Will Lockwood. I also wonder about the offensive tools. Like, I don't think he's going to be a guy who has top nine potential, to be totally honest with you, despite the speed. But at the by that same token, like, every time I see him at camp, the skill level, the puck skills, the ability to pass, like, it all looks, you know, low-end NHL level. And I mean that as a compliment. Like, so, I mean, we'll see. Like, I, I just don't think the scoring's ever been there for him to suggest that there's more than that that's possible. But that, to me, is possible, and it might be possible right now. You look at a guy like Danila Klimovich, um, he would talk about youth and naivete, and he really believed that he was coming here to, to earn a job. How did he impress you today, if he did? Yeah, I mean, he played well. Like, uh, you know, I, I... But he's got a big jump to make just in terms of the level he played at versus what he's being asked to do here. Did he look out of place at all? No, he didn't. He didn't. And you got to tip your cap to him. You know what? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not about going out and saying that Klimovich has, like, got an inside track at earning an NHL job or anything, but... Does he have a real shot at sticking in the American League? Like, that's the really big question. And on a line with Dowling and Highmore today, I thought he played pretty well. Like, I thought he I, – I don't think he looked out of place. And, and considering the physical fitness demands, the skating demands on players on, uh, you know, for, for on Thursday at Thursday's practice, I mean, that's a pretty good outcome for him. Let's take a look at the back end. And, you know, we've touched on it a little bit just in terms of the two that aren't here. But Ewell Levy and Myers – Rathbone and Shen, um, and and you mentioned you think that his performance in the bag skate probably really left a bad impression and, and a bad first step for Yolevi in his battle to get that spot. Um, 
Hunt is the other one in that mix. What do you see happening? Like, do you think they're going to rotate these guys through in terms of who their pairs are for the next three days before we get into the preseason? Well, I think a lot of it will be determined by the availability of other players, right? I mean, yeah. hypothetically, the Canucks were without a pair that we expected to be their top pair this season. And I don't think there's any end in sight to those holdouts. Like, it's completely uncertain what happens next on both of those fronts. Um, you know, the guy who stood out to me a little bit today, not a little bit, a fair bit today, was Luke Shen. And here's why. Uh, today, again, was a day that rewarded stamina and speed. That's where Luke Shen should not look good, right? Like, Brady Keeper, I thought, had some good moments in battle drills, for example, on Thursday. But, you know, the 40 skate wasn't his bag and, you know, on and on. Like, this was not a day that Keeper's, what Keeper can do, shine through. Um, Luke Shen had a really good day on a day that should not benefit him. And as we get into scrimmages and as we get into, uh, you know, some of the drills that really prioritize structure and defensive play and in-zone defensive play, like, there is going to be days that are more beneficial to a Shen keeper player type that he had a good day in a week on, like, like the, on a week profile day. To me, augurs well for what Luke Shen can do in terms of making a case to be in that opening night lineup. Yeah, I think he's going to make life difficult for Travis Green because the way those guys are being paid on that right side, like you, you can't put him in the lineup. I mean, maybe you bump Travis Hamannick at some point, but it's going to be really difficult. And yeah, we hear it's a meritocracy, but the dollars are the dollars. Like you can't take Pullman and put him out. You can't take Myers and drop him. Like it's just going to be a real difficult thing. But we're going to find, I think, that every time Shen plays – we're going to be looking at each other in the press box thinking Shen should be playing more. Yeah, I mean, there's a very good possibility of that, especially with how well his skill set complements, you know, whether it's Rathbone Hunt or Hughes, like, he's pretty much the perfect guy to put with those players, especially if he's not, you know, ever shooting from the point. I mean, yeah. that's the key. Well, because when you look at Tyler Myers and the way he plays and the way he gets exposed, like, that's not the player you want with those guys. I mean, he might leave them in greater trouble than he found them. Whereas Luke Shen, I, I mean, let's, let's be real. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Luke Shen doesn't try to do too much, right? Ever. Uh, Tyler Myers gets into trouble when he tries to do too much. Which is often. Uh, <laughs> ele elephant in the room time, uh, Travis Hamannick. So... He, you know, they said he was here. They left us yesterday thinking that he was going to participate, even though they didn't say that. But, uh, you know, and there were reports that he was either not going to be here or not going to participate. He didn't. We believe this is vaccine related. And we also know the clock is ticking based on when teams are going to have to travel, try to cross the border, how much time there is between now and the regular season. I mean, the preseason doesn't really matter at this stage. But where are we at right now with Travis Hamannick? Because Jim Benning left no doubt Every player, they will be 100% vaccinated. So those discussions are happening, you know, with, with Travis Hamannick, and you have to believe there's been some sort of solution carved out here. What are his options? Yeah, I, I mean, a lot of questions today about how to square what Jim said on Wednesday with Hamannick's continued absence from the Canucks training camp roster. And how do you square it, in my mind, you have to recognize that this is a very fluid situation, right? That this is something that, you know, on like on Monday, we reported at The Athletic and we were right, uh, Dollywall and I, that like something had moved that made the Canucks feel more confident that they would be able to announce on Wednesday that they were fully vaccinated. On Wednesday morning, it was reported that Har um, Hamannick, I almost said Harmonic, 
which would be like a, a mix between Travis Hamannick and Harmon Dial. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hamannick uh, was not going to be at training camp. And then Jim came out and nonetheless said, we'll be 100% vaccinated. And then later told Sports N650 that um, Travis Hamannick would be joining the team today. Well, he didn't. So how do you square all of what's happening? Because there's no way that they would be careless about what they were delivering on a matter of such significant public interest. Uh, the only way to square it is that things are changing, right? Like that this is a very fluid situation. Um, until Hamannick is on the ice with his teammates, I, like I'm not sure he's joining the team. Like I need to see that number 27 on Abbotsford Center ice before I'm going to say, like, I'm confident that Hamnick will join the team. Um, but in terms of his options, as far as travel and how long it's going to take and his vaccine options, it, how possible is it that he's going to be ready if he hasn't had a shot yet? A, a single shot yet? Well, I mean, there's all sorts of weird permutations. I mean, the, you know, the... I mean, there's a withdrawal deadline on October 1st. The Canucks have that long road trip that takes them through the United States and lasts more than seven days. So if you were to get a J&J shot on arrival in Philadelphia on, a, on Octo- uh, October 14th, you could lapse your seven days and come into Canada fully vaxxed by the end of the road trip. So there's all sorts of crazy ways to accomplish this without him missing any time, uh, which suggests to me that the issue is, you know, still under discussion between the sides. Like, it, it's not a logistical issue, obviously. There's something else going on you know, it's going to be not quite as big a topic as Hughes and Pedersen, but I mean, this is this is significant for this team right now when you consider the expectations for him. I mean, it's not like they can save the cap space if he doesn't play. Well, unless they can, unless he opts out. Yeah, but at this stage, that decision would have been made, would it not? Well, October 1st is the deadline. So, I mean, by the letter of the NHL protocols, you know, we're still sort of in feeling out territory here. And then, yeah, I mean, look, it's really complicated. It's really complicated and it's really expensive if you're a Canadian-based player. I mean, people are talking about Tyler Bertuzzi forfeiting about a yeah. half million dollars because he can't play in nine Canadian games. That Nine can- games in Canada that Detroit has on the schedule. And what um, is it, about 34 American uh, games? And, so. and, and by the time you look at the dates, like by the time you look at the days missed, we're talking like 45%, 40% of your salary, right? Like we're talking a really expensive proposition here, uh, Farhan. So, yeah, I mean, look, I don't have a sense for how this gets settled. Uh, my sense is that it's a fluid situation, and I'm curious to see whether or not we see Hamannick on the ice, number 27, at Canucks training camp. Let's save the best for last. And, you know, this is a chance for us to look at placeholders and guys in other spots and see where players fit. But as far as the contract situations around Pedersen and Hughes, not much appears to have changed from the last two days. Well, the one thing that did change materially is Rasmus Dahlin. That is a big comp for the CAA camp in Quinn Hughes. Sorry, Canucks fans. But... Before that, right, there's been a lot of chatter all offseason because of Haskinen, because of Makar, that the, you know, market for second contract defensemen, there's a new paradigm with these, you know, comparables that have busted through the Thomas Shabbat barrier, right? And yet, for all that that was absolutely true, it was true predicated on the logic of long-term contracts, right? The deals that governed a potential short-term settlement for Hughes remained Sergeyev, McAvoy, Wierenski, all between $4.65 and $5 million on three-year contracts. Dolan 
coming in at 6 times 3. And this is super inconvenient because part of the reason he gets 6.3 is that Buffalo needed the money to get to the floor yeah. of the salary cap. Um, that detonates that bridge deal paradigm. Then you throw into the fact that, like, if you think Hughes should, you know, be paid a little bit less than his counting stats indicate because he's not great defensively, like, you know who's really not great defensively? Rasmus Dolan. <laughs> you know who's, like, significantly worse than Hughes in every phase of the game? It's Rasmus Dolan. So, you know, throw a premium on that. Like, Hughes' market value now on a three-year deal, the Canucks might have been credibly able to argue that it was six a few days ago. Now, it might be seven. It might be six and a half. Like, it's way higher. And so, you know, as these comparables come in, I yeah, but do... When you look at the circumstances, I mean, take Minnesota, for example, and what happened there with Kaprizov and... Their cap situation, given what they were doing with the buyouts to Suter and Parise, it was understood that that had an impact here. And and you're saying that the cap ramifications the Buffalo was under just to get to the floor aren't going to factor in here at all. Well, because the the way that the Suter Parise dynamic factored into Kaprizov negotiations was to make a bridge deal very unlikely. Yeah, and I think a bridge deal is almost assured for Petey. So as a result, the Kaprizov deal will have minimal impact on Pedersen's valuation because I just, Pedersen's not going to sell UFA years. Kaprizov gets to nine because he sold two UFA years. So I, I, you know, I don't really see Kaprizov as a comp that significantly alters things in talks with the Canucks involving Pedersen. I see Dolan as something that fundamentally alters what the short-term paradigm for, like if Kaprizov had come in at three times eight, that would have had the same impact that Dolan at 3.6 did. On these talks, uh, because Kaprizov sold UFA years, I think the impact's muted. So where do we go from here? I mean, they continue to talk, and you think that you know we were talking about the possibility of Hughes being able to maybe they get six years out of Hughes, even if they get two or three on Pedersen. Is that over now? No, I don't think that's over. I just think that the you know uh, the fundamental dynamic is that these guys are tied together, right? They have the same agent. Um, that's beneficial in some ways. Could you imagine if they were represented by different agents? And Pedersen had to go first, and you had Hughes just sort of hanging in the wind, waiting on a teammate. Like that would be really awkward. The fact that they're both with CAA actually kind of helps the Canucks as this becomes a stalemate. Yeah, it doesn't become personal anymore. Right, exactly. Uh, the problem, I think, fundamentally, is that you know there's only so much that the Canucks can spend. They kind of have to hold the line on the bridge comps with PD, right? Like you can't get into conversations involving Marner and Ranton and, and Kaprizov if you're the Canucks because you don't have the aggregate cap space to do both if those are the comparable deals you're looking at. You really need the comps to be Point and Barzell and Matthew Kachuk. And, you know, I think bridging that, like bridging that divide is really tough because of the impact that it then has on Quinn, right? Like, well, would you do this uh, for Petey? Because once we do that, we diminish the amount for Quinn. Well, then that only works on a five-year deal, but that walks him to UFA. Like, that doesn't work. So, you know, I think that the conjoined nature of these talks is convenient in some respects for Vancouver and is complicating in a lot of other facets. And it's going to get that much more complicated if Brady Kachuk gets done because then there will only be two left. Well, and, and that's been my big take all day, like, as I've thought about this. Like, you know, you don't become a super agent, right? You don't become a great representative maximizing your client's, um, you know, uh, income if you can't pass a basic cutthroat test, right? 
And what is the cutthroat test in a situation where there's three remaining RFAs and two of them play for the same team? You wait for the third guy to sign, and then there's only two. I mean... Yeah, imagine the pressure on Jim Benning in that moment. Totally. And if, you know, that's how I would do it. Like, that's... I'm not, I'm not saying that's what they're thinking. I'm saying that's what I would do. And, you know, they're smarter than me. Barely. No. A lot. JP Barry, Pat Brisson, they're smarter than me. So... <laughs> We, we, we've got two Appreciate more. It, we've got two more days of camp. Uh, both groups will will skate again on Friday and Saturday. Now you're hanging out in a hotel in Abbotsford. Are you going to wind up doing the same in Spokane? I don't think so. No. Come I, on, I, Spokane's I, a great town. Is it? It is. Oh, really? I've spent a lot of time there. I won't tell you why, but or at least I won't tell you why on, on camera. Or on the mic. <laughs> should I drive? No, do not do that. I should. Fly. You've got to fly. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to do that. The Athletics got a big budget. Because <laughs> Lord knows they're not paying me. I'm not going to go to Spokane, but I'm going to find a way to watch the game somehow. Although my understanding is that it's being televised in Seattle. They're televising it in Seattle, and I'd guess like it's going to be televised on a TV station that we all get in Vancouver. Yeah, King 5 Fox, one of those TV yeah, stations I think it's for King. sure. I think it's King 5, but it's going to be blacked out for sure in the Vancouver market, and I don't believe that it's being picked up by the Canucks rights holder. So it uh, might be a tricky one to access. I got a way. I'll fill you in. <laughs> <laughs> you know where I live. Hey, uh, the uh, as we say goodbye for show 2.0 and pod 2.0, the presumptive number one pick in the 2022 NHL draft, Shane Wright, will be Max Boltman and Corey Pronman's guest on Friday's podcast series on the Athletic Hockey Show. And uh, once again, thanks for listening to the VanCast. Please follow us on your favorite podcast platform and leave a rating and review. We'd really appreciate it. Subscribe to the Athletic Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts to get all the bonus content from our entire network. Start with a 30-day free trial and then just 99 cents a month after that. Right now, annual subscriptions to The Athletic are 50% off when you visit theathletic.com slash VanCast. I'm looking forward to our dinner. Yeah, me too. We're going for steak with who we're going with. Your former wife. <laughs> How does that work? That's pretty uncomfortable for me. <laughs> Is it? Not at all. No, I mean, we always hang out. We do, and we'll probably sit in the same. We were in the same press box today with Harm watching practice, and we will do the same for the next couple of days. But, hey, we're off to a roaring start training camp. We're getting to talk hockey as opposed to contracts and everything else. We're still doing the contracts. but uh, Oh, you know what? I should mention, actually, we are going for steak. J-Pat is paying off the steak bet tonight. Just for just for the VanCast heads, J-Pat is paying off the steak bet tonight. What's our bet going to be? Yeah, we're, we'll, we'll think of it. It has to come organically. All We've right. got lots of time before the start of the season. Per- fair enough. Fair enough. You've got, you've got the expense account. <laughs> Came all the way out to your hotel to do a podcast. Right away you owe me. <laughs> That's true. Thanks again for tuning in. We look forward to training camp, and uh, thank you to all the VIPs for subscribing and listening.